They are our 11 warriors. No, they are the 11 warriors. The most disciplined and the toughest damn dudes you're ever going to be around. Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom and pleased to be joined for the start of this week's episode by Kyle Jones, who I'm sure if you are an 11 Warriors reader, you know as our film guru and somebody who can really help us break down what happened the last time Ohio State played against Michigan. And of course, look ahead to the game that's coming up in just a few weeks against Georgia. And so We'll get into that, Kyle, but you know, I wanted to start off by asking you, it's been a few weeks, you've had some time to digest what happened in the Michigan game. Just when you look back at what happened in that game, where did Ohio State fail in its game plan? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's something that really helps the more time you take on it. Before I get in, it's good to be back with you guys. Good to chat with you. Thanks for having me back. It's been fun to talk about this in multiple venues with more time each, each, each conversation I have. But now here we are a couple weeks removed from the game. And I think it is one of those, one of those exercises that when you have the time to, to really, you know, let it sink in and really digest, the, the story does change. The picture changes a little bit. So, you know, I think in the immediate aftermath, there were a lot of hot takes. Myself had, some, you know, all of us were guilty of, of being, of living in the moment. I think you know, to answer the question of, of where did Ohio State really fall apart, the game plan itself, I think, was pretty sound, to be totally candid. I think this, the game plan was probably one that if they went back into the game and played it again this week, I don't I don't think Ohio State's changing that much of what they're going to try to do if they, have, they were to play Michigan, whether it's in the national championship or just they lined up and, you know, met, met in a parking lot in Toledo tomorrow. I, I think they're going to do a lot of the same stuff. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you really think about what the game was, it was on offense, they moved the ball between the twenties really well. I mean, they, they really did well, especially once the game got tight in the third quarter, I thought they did a good job of letting Stroud actually do what he does best and the receivers do it. But they were throwing a lot of vertical routes downfield and trusting Stroud and asking him to make plays. And he did, you know, if you think about that moment in the fourth quarter, they're down 11. They'd just given up the, the long run to Edwards. They get the ball back and everyone's thinking, Oh, this is all over. This game's never. And what do they do? They rip off a 56 yard throw down the seam to Agbuka. Right. And it was a dime from Stroud. And what they were doing is they were just saying, right, we're running four verticals. We're sending them deep and we're we're letting CJ and those receivers do their thing. So I, I don't think it was necessarily a an overthinking or that the plan was wrong. The only place where I would quibble was really in the red zone. And I'm sure that's what people are saying. But what about near the goal line? And in that case, yes, I, I think it was a miss to not try and get the ball to the playmakers more to Harrison, of course, but also Abuka. You know, I think they spent all season trying to show everyone how big and strong and tough they were by pounding the ball up the middle, and it didn't really work all that great. You know, you guys are, are well aware, just as I am, that this team is the best when it's isolating Marvin Harrison and just trying to throw him the ball, attending Abuka on a crossing route, which they did early in the game. And I think they got maybe a little too cute when they got inside the 20, I think they, they were worried that, Hey, we're not going to be able to line up and just smash mouth, push around Michigan because the strength of that defense was right in the middle. And I think that Ryan day felt like we were going to have to find some new ways. And, and on paper they work, but you know, and the, the benefit of hindsight is that ball can't go to Xavier Johnson. It can't go to Cade Stover. It's got to go to 18. Right. And I, I think that's where the game plan fell apart, at least on offense. Defensively. I actually, again, the game plan worked. Like, like I, don't, I don't know what to tell people. Like, the game plan was pretty good. Going in, if I told you Ohio State's going to hold Michigan to, you know, less than a yard a carry in the first half, less than two yards a carry through three quarters, and they're going to just make J.J. McCarthy hit deep shots to Cornelius Johnson and Luke Schoonmaker, you're going to – both of you guys would be like, oh, that, that seems like a good, good, good recipe for Ohio State to win. They bet against McCarthy, which every defensive coordinator on the planet would do when faced with choosing between that offensive line and Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards or J.J. McCarthy and those receivers. They bet on stopping the run, making McCarthy beat him. Credit to McCarthy, made the throws when he had to, 
you know, it was the worst case scenario in those busts. You know, I think there's a lot of questions that I still have about why was Cam Martinez in the game? Was Tanner McAllister hurt? What's going on there? Because that was just an absolute blown coverage, the second long TD that McCarthy hit. The first one, missed tackle, that happens. The second one's a bust. That's where you have to start asking questions and saying, who's in the game? Why are they in the game? But from a schematic standpoint, I don't think the plan was wrong until we got to those two end runs. And what I mean by that, when you're game planning for Blake Corum, who's on a bad knee, that dude's falling forward, right? He's getting five, six, eight yards of carry. And they're looking to stuff those gaps because they know he's not a home run hitter. They know that. They know he's not going to be able to bust the long one. So they were trying to fill every gap. And that was the plan all throughout the game. But when Edwards came in and became the lone back that was getting all of the carries, he's a home run hitter. And you have to change your plan accordingly. So that means you can't put all 11 guys in the box, each one manning a gap because there's nobody at the second level. If they're playing with, with Hickman and or Ransom playing a little bit deeper, you know, Ransom was the deep safety on the first one, but he was worried. He was watching the quarterback read, which was a nice adjustment for Michigan. I thought Michigan did a really nice job adjusting and saying, hey, they're stopping the run game. We're not going to play under center anymore. This is going to be a shotgun run game, and J.J. McCarthy is going to have to pull and run the ball. And that changed the math for, for Ohio State. So I, I think for three quarters, to answer your question, the long-winded way, for three quarters, the plan was great. I don't really have any, any, any qualms. There were some executional breakdowns, of course. But the plan was right. The fourth quarter, I think, and this is where you start to wonder, okay, who's making the decisions? How ready were they? You know, this is the little bit of how Michigan is as a team. They wear you down. They play better and best in the fourth quarter. And I think that was that was really the difference we saw. So, you know, I don't think I would change a whole lot, though. And Jones, I think in real time, a lot of people kind of came away with this opinion that, you know, Ohio State might have been, you know, not a, too conservative on offense and maybe you know, too aggressive on defense. And I know you alluded to to some of the times in which, you know, you thought both of those might have been the case on either side, but do you feel like that's an oversimplification maybe of, you know, what actually happened in that game? So it's a fair point, but I don't know if it's as simple as, as the play calling itself was conservative. I think the team played not to lose. And I, I think especially in the first half, the offense, there were some throws that CJ had Marvin open. You know, they're, they're, I can I can think of a couple different times where they had three receivers to one side of the field, Harrison lined up all on one. They've done that all year, right? And it's very much Marvin's going to have his route that CJ can check to, you know, depending on the coverage structure. And then they're going to run a three-man route combination to the other side. And maybe that opens a Buka, maybe it's somebody else. But that's a very common way that Ohio State's run their offense for years. And it's not, you know, unique to Ohio State. But there were a few a few times where they needed a, a play, whether it's a second along, a third and medium, something like that. And Harrison's not wide open, but he's as open as he's going to get in some of these high high contested games, some of these high comp- competition games. And Stroud didn't pull the trigger. You know, he checked down to Chip Trainum. He checked down to Cade Stover to Mitch Rossi which is technically the right play as far as your quarterback coach grading you and saying you took care of the football. Like Jim Trussell would have been very proud of those decisions, right? To, to play conservative football, take care of it, don't put your – but when you're playing Michigan and you're playing for a spot to win the conference, to go to the CFP, to beat your rival, you got to rip it. And I think eventually, as I alluded to earlier, he started ripping it. But there were a bunch of moments, especially in the first half, where you could tell that Stroud was playing – Almost like, and, and again, he's well coached, but it's almost he's too well coached. He needed a little bit of that gunslinger, a little bit of that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna take my shot, which McCarthy did, right? Like McCarthy didn't have a great day statistically. He had a couple big shots. He had one. I mean, the, the first touchdown was a seven yard hitch that turned into a sixty yard run. You know, let's be honest. That wasn't the quarterback making the play here. It was a missed tackle. The second one, the guy was wide open. The third one. The touchdown to Schoonmaker, or I'm sorry, to, to Loveland, the tight end, you know, that was a great play. And I think that's the stuff that you're looking for for Stroud to be, say, okay, great. Get out of your coaching mentality and you're overcoached and this works on seven and seven and your coach is happy in the film room. There are just certain times that a quarterback's got to say, I'm going to take this on and I'm going to rip it. And, and that's the thing that I was waiting to get from Stroud. He got there, 
but it took him some time. It took him a, maybe a series or two longer than I think we probably would have liked. Now, another thing that's been talked about a lot since that Michigan game is whether Ryan Day should give up offensive play calling next year. What do you think about that? And in line with that, how, how do you think Ohio State should go about replacing Kevin Wilson as offensive coordinator? <laughs> well, I think the answer's already here. And, and I was one of those critics that, that said, you know, in, in the immediate hindsight of the game that, you know, Day should give it up. And I'll, I'll, I'll make my case for why, and then I'll share why that's clearly not happening. <laughs> because, you know, to, in, my, in my mind, and you look at the sport as a whole, whether it's at the college level, the pro level, very few of the top echelon coaches actually call their own plays. Andy Reid, who's been one of the best coaches in, in the sport for, for a long time, he doesn't call the plays. Is he involved in the game planning? Of course he is. But he's not in there thinking about, what do I want to make on this second and five call? He's got input, but Eric Bieniemy is making those calls. Bill Belichick isn't calling plays on either side of the ball. You know, you go up and down outside of Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan in the NFL, and then at the college level, outside of Lincoln Riley, who's calling plays? You know, Kirby Smart's not going to call a play in this single game outside of saying, let's call the fake punt here or there, or let's go for it. But then, then again, he's not calling plays. And I say that because the game management is so important in these high leverage situations. The difference between going for it on fourth and five versus fourth and two. And credit for to today for going for it on that botched fake punt. But at a certain point, you know, the if you're the head coach and you're you're gonna decide to fake the punt, there's got to be a sense of urgency. And he's got to own that. You know, I, I don't know how much you, you guys would know better than I am how much he's actually talked about it in the days since and not not a lot. Harbaugh was the one who really let everyone know that it was out there before the film got released. And so, you know, the Fox cameras didn't show anybody in the stadium what was going. It was so hard on TV to even know that was a fake punt or should have been. And, and so all this is to say, like, the game management aspect is so important in these high leverage situations. Are we going for it? How are we doing? It's also there to have someone to check the play caller and say, like, whoa, 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 why are you doing this? This isn't work. We need we need to be thinking differently. and. There are play callers and there are plenty of guys that are capable of calling plays. Certainly Kevin Wilson has been capable of calling plays. He's proven that he's good at it. Justin Fry has called plays. You know, there's up and comers on the staff, whether it's, you know, Brian Hartline is someone a lot of people want to see call plays, even though he's never done it. And all that is to say that there's a lot of guys who can call plays for a team. The head coach is the CEO of the program and you've got a lot to worry about. You've got recruiting to worry about. And I think the culture is one thing that fans of this team are worried about. You know, there's been accusations from the play, former players that it's now a country club culture compared to, Ur, you know, when Urban was there. And that may have been part of the reason Ohio State has lost the edge to Michigan. You know, there are a bunch of different things going on. And if you're the, you're the head coach, you're the CEO, you're responsible for all of them. You shouldn't have to feel responsible for game planning for Indiana in week five. That, you know, and we're on the outside. I don't know how much he's actually doing that game plan versus – you know, was he handing that off to Keenan Bailey and Corey Dennis to do that anyway? Maybe, for all we know. And, you know, we're saying this as outsiders, and I recognize it. And that's why I say it's not going to happen. <laughs> he's not giving up play calling as evidenced by these changes he's made. Promoting Keenan Bailey, who I think anyone who's been close to the program knows what a critical component he has played in the offense for a long time, whether or not he had a headset on or he was out recruiting players or not. You know, that dude was has been involved with every game plan Ohio State's put together since Ryan Day set foot on campus. You know, he's the one that charts it up. And you go to coaching clinics, you listen to them, you hear Ryan Day talk about the, the effect that Corey Dennis and Keenan Bailey had on the offense, which is why they are now position coaches. And so I think what you're seeing is Ryan Day saying, yes, I could give it up and hand it off to someone else, which is what I initially advocated for and just did a few minutes ago. But I, he's doubling down on himself and saying, I don't want an outside voice. And that outside voice for him was the kind of arranged marriage with Kevin Wilson that Urban Meyer put in place in 2017, right? Those guys had different backgrounds, different philosophies, and they, they married them up pretty well together. I think Wilson, we all knew, was running the run game and Day was running the passing game. And I think the last couple of years, you've kind of seen the Ohio State run game be not what it could be in a lot of people's eyes, given the talent at hand. And now by having, they hired Justin Fry last year. And it was very clear that that was a move to say, we want 
to bring this to a run game that Day is more comfortable with. When they, what Day and and Fry ran together at Boston College when they were on the staff. When when Day was the OC, Fry was the offensive line coach, and then of course the connection to Chip Kelly is obvious as well. And, and so I think this is a move to, for Ryan Day to say, like, great, I'm going to go hire the best talent I can to coach the defense. Whoever we need to get, we'll go get them. But on offense, this is mine. This is my philosophy. This is I'm going to build it in the way that I want to build it. And that's what these coaching, these staff moves, in my mind at least, signify. And, you know, speaking of the defense there, obviously the, the first 12 games under Jim Knowles, how would you evaluate his performance, you know, in, in terms of, has has you know his his defense with Ohio State exceeded your expectations? Met your expectations? Obviously, in light of the Michigan Michigan game, has it underperformed? You know, given that Ohio State had a you know in terms of points put up and things like that, a worse performance this year against Michigan than it had a year ago. Yeah, it's it's that's the ultimate question, isn't it? You know, like he had eleven games to get warmed up, and then how did he do it when he took the final? But you know, in my eyes, when they hired Jim Knowles. This was not to fix it in year one. This was a long-term system that they were asking him to put in place. Everywhere that Jim Knowles had been, it took him a few years to get it up and running. And frankly, the speed at which he got Ohio State improved this season is by far his best performance ever as an assistant coach. None of his none of his year ones looked like this type of turnaround. And so I think there is probably some, you know, this always happens. It's Ohio State. You want to win every year. You want to win every single game 100 to nothing. But those expectations may not have been in line with reality for what he was capable of. And so in that perspective, I think he did a pretty good job. I think there are some clear personnel mismatches with what he inherited versus what he ultimately wants to do. I think defensive tackle is the first and the biggest place. I mean, that's why you're seeing the kid McDonald from Georgia coming in. I mean, that 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 is what Ohio State wants to recruit along the D-line is big space eater run stuffer defensive lineman. You want to see really athletic safeties. I, I guarantee you, if, if you asked Jim Knowles, if you could have three Ronnie Hickmans, he would have said yes and just played three Ronnie Hickmans at safety. And then he needs corners that can tackle, as we've all seen, not just in the Michigan game, but all year long. You need corners that can not only cover, but that can tackle. And that's different from what Jeff Halfley, Kerry Combs, what Matt Barnes, what they were doing with those defensive backs. So I think the personnel mismatch, it's really – it's hard to say that, you know, he had all the pieces because he had more talent than he's ever had at his disposable at his disposal. But I don't think that he had everything that he would ultimately want or will have for this defense. So when you look at some of the issues that we've seen in the secondary specifically this year, do you look at that as more of a, you know, talent, not necessarily marrying with the scheme rather than just a scheme issue? Well, I, Yes, for the most part, until the Michigan game. The Michigan game, they basically changed defenses, which was bizarre to me. You know, this was an, a defense that played a variety of coverages. They would mix it up a lot. You know, they, they talked about on the broadcast for those that watched about how he's going to show one look pre-snap and then they're going to change the look post-snap. They were doing that all year long and they're doing it with, a, with success. Against Michigan, they were sticking one safety in the middle of the field and playing man coverage. It was Kerry Combs all over again. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't work. Like I said, it was working because that's what they thought they needed to do against Michigan. But that's also not who they are as, you know, who that team had played as all season. And so I think there is some questioning that I'm sure has gone on inside the whack of how much did we sell out, you know, and how much did we betray that personality that we've been building, that identity that we've been building as a unit just for one game. And if so, if knowing that the Michigan game is the kind of end-all, be-all for this program, is that the right design? Do we need to rethink about the design? And those are some much bigger philosophical questions that, you know, I could write a million columns on, but I'd never be able to answer the question. And let's uh, turn the page a little bit here now to the CFP matchup coming up on December 31st. Jones, you're, you're doing a, a four-part series, you know, diving into some some Georgia film and things of that nature. You know, as as you've kind of dug in now to some of that, what what are some of the biggest takeaways and, and you know things that have stood out to you in your initial research here? So the first thing that surprised me, and, I, and I've I've had the the opportunity to do this a number of times, you know, I've been with 11 warriors now for eight years. I think this is my eighth season, ninth season on, on, on the team, which means I've had a lot of bowl games that I've had to be, been able to prep for CFPs. You know, I've been able to, to be a part of, 
This is the first time in a while that I can remember turning on the tape for a CFP team and being surprised, being let down at what I saw. And that is not to say Georgia is not a good team. They're, they are a very good team. But this is not the Deshaun Watson Clemson era. This is not the Trevor Lawrence Clemson team. This is not the Mac Jones, you know, Devontae Smith, Alabama team. Like this team's very good. But there are only a couple guys on that team, in my opinion, in my opinion, that really jump off the page and really jump off the screen as you're watching the tape and you go, whoa, that's a dude who who I don't see a lot of you don't see guys like that. There are a couple certainly from Georgia, and they've probably got as many as anyone else in the country. Jalen Carter, the defensive tackle, is the best player in the country. Just full stop. Full stop. Like that's it. If Ohio State loses the game. It's because he probably ate Matt Jones and Donald Jackson and Luke Whippler's lunch, which he's done to everybody he's played all year. And that's the biggest number one thing Ohio State has to figure out how to deal with is number 88 because he's an absolute freak. But it's not like last year with Georgia's team where they had five of those freaks, right? They had five, you know, the entire offense, defensive front got drafted. You know, they had the number one pick in the draft. And, and so – I think you you start to say, okay, what are my expectations of this team? And they've been built up as this two years undefeated, just absolutely stacked. And I think the reality is, yes, there's plenty of talent, but it's not the same team it was a year year prior. And and this is going to give a lot of Ohio State fans hope. And I don't I don't necessarily I'm not equating it, but it's similar to Miami in 2001 and 2002. That 2001 Miami team was absolutely loaded with talent. The Miami 2002 team was also filled with lots of talented players, but it was not the same team as it was the year prior. And I think that's what we're dealing, we're talking about with Georgia. And so I think as we prepare for them, we talk about this team, it's worth recognizing that the gap between them and Ohio State is not big in terms of overall talent. I think from Georgia's perspective, this is the worst possible outcome in terms of matchups because Ohio State is the one team that has the talent to match them. It's in different places, and that's going to be the fun part of this is the matchups are unique. And where we, one team has a strength might be more of a weakness to the other, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But this team is – these two programs are on level footing when it comes to overall talent, in my opinion. Obviously, you know, you look at this matchup and you think of, you know, Ohio State's high-powered offense and Georgia's high-powered defense. But we just saw, you know, Michigan hold Ohio State to 23 points. Both these defenses are ranked in the top 10. But how do you think this Georgia defense compares to the one that we just saw Ohio State play in? So it's similar in a lot of ways in the sense that the strength of the both defenses is, is on the interior. You know, the defensive tackle spots for both both of those teams are, you know, the strength. Both That's the, the spot where the best player on both of those, you know, teams is, whether it's Mozzie Smith for, for Michigan and, and Jalen Carter for Georgia. But neither of them had a huge, have a, a great pass rush. You know, Georgia's pass rush is the is the relative weakness on this team. I would say, you know, they they can't they don't generate a lot of pressure with four. They have to blitz to get pressure on the quarterbacks. You know, they lost their leading pass rusher Nolan Smith earlier this season, the best true pass rusher, and the replacements just have not stepped up. And so what that means is those defensive backs, they've got to cover for a long time. And I think like that's going to be interesting. Is is how much are they just going to sit back and play too deep? Because that was one thing Michigan dared Ohio State to do, is they said, we are going to play too deep. And that was different from how Michigan had played all year. They had been much more of a single high, a man coverage team. And Michigan played a lot of too deep. Georgia certainly can. They've got that whole cover seven package that, you know, Kirby Smart brought with him from, from Nick Saban in Alabama, which is essentially a whole family of coverages and checks. And it's it's everything. It's every call you could ever want to stop every pass coverage or pass concept. It's just whether you called the right one at the right time. But the problem with calling cover seven is you can run on cover seven. So what's what's the system that Kirby and, and, his, and his, his staff are going to decide to run? And so I, I think that's where you have to look. To me, the most interesting place is going to be over the middle. The linebackers for Georgia, great run defenders leave something to be desired against the pass. You can attack the middle tight. You know, this, as much as I was critical of his play and against Michigan, take Cade Stover is going to have to have a big game. He's going to have to make some plays and he's going to have to make some catches over the middle. And he will have, you know, an, an athleticism advantage in that space. But ultimately this is going to come down to, I think, you know, Kaylee Ringo is, is the cornerback and never, there's been already been a lot of talk about how good, just how good he is. They put him, they've had to put him, just man to man on the outside because they need the safeties to help the other defenders. 
Those other defenders can't man up. Ringo's the best one at manning up. And even still, he's gotten beaten deep. And so I'm, I'm not necessarily blown away by Georgia's ability to cover the pass from a personnel standpoint. Schematically, of course, they've got all the answers in the playbook. But if you're able to scheme up, if you're Ryan Day and you're able to scheme up, how can I get Marvin Harrison, Ibuka, Julian Fleming even is going to you know, be – he's going to have his, his opportunities to make plays. And if you can get those guys one-on-one against Georgia's defenders, Ohio State's got the advantage. And then Jones on offense for Georgia. I mean, obviously they have Stetson Bennett, a quarterback, you know, a Heisman Trophy finalist. Some people are, you know, critical of of that, you know, decision there to to put him amongst that 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 group. Obviously, Brock Bowers at tight end. But when you kind of look at the Georgia statistically, nothing you know jumps out at you, you know, crazily in terms of you know individual stats or anything like that. So, what do you think Georgia does best offensively, and what can Ohio State do to adjust, you know, and have a better chance on defense? Yeah, what, what Georgia's offense is built upon is that it's not that they do anything after the snap particularly well that they can hang their hat on. You know, they they run a lot of different run schemes. They run a, a number of different pass schemes. They run through a lot of screens. There's nothing that you say, wow, that's really unique and special, other than, of course, having Bowers, who is very much the queen on the chessboard in terms of his athleticism and his size, create matchup problems. And and. You know, I think that's going to be the most interesting matchup is just how does Ohio State choose to defend him throughout the game? But what Georgia's offense as a whole does really well is they move and motion and do everything imaginable before the snap. They're extremely well coached. The, 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 how well this entire team is coached has been remarkable. That has been the thing that as I've watched the film, they don't commit a lot of penalties. They don't line up in the wrong place. You don't see a lot of chaos before the snap on either side of the ball. And that's especially true for this offense. They will line up in one look and there'll be, you know, they'll trade the tight ends and then they'll shit. They'll, you know, run a receiver in jet motion across the formation the other way. And then they'll run a read option back to the left. Like they, they do all of this stuff before the snap to make you as a defense think and make you stop and go, all right, what's going, what's actually happening. What is the movement that I actually have to pay attention to? Is there so many bells and whistles before the window dressing, as coaches call it, when they're just running split zone. And, you know, they'll, they'll do all this kind of stuff just to run split zone because if they just line up and run split zone, it's not like they've got, you know, a Heisman winner in the backfield, you know, at red running back, where it's not as though they, they can just, they've got a Marvin Harrison out wide to throw to who can just win one-on-one other than Bowers, who they've got to, you know, scheme up the right matchup for even. And so I think that's what they do really well is they, they manipulate defense defenses before the snap and get them thinking and catch them out of position so they're a body short in the direction where they run the ball. And it's going to be infuriating for Ohio State fans to watch. I can guarantee you that when they run all of this motion just to get a bubble screen and the bubble screen let nets eight yards, and then they do it again, and they do it again, and they, they piece together drives this way really, really effectively. They understand and they self-scout, I think, based off of how they, you know, watching them. I think they know what they do a lot and they make sure that no one can take advantage of it. So it's extremely well coached, extremely well designed. They do a lot before the snap, but once the ball is snapped, if you're lined up as a, as a defense, there's nothing new that they're doing after the snap. There's nothing like crazy schematically that they're actually doing once the ball is actually in play. I know you'll be writing about the keys of a game in a couple of weeks, but can you just give us a preview? Like what are one or two keys that really stand out in your mind? If Ohio state's going to win this game, they've got to be able to do this. So I think first off on, on when Ohio state is on defense, let's start there against that Georgia offense. As I was just talking about it, you've got to make Stetson Bennett throw the ball deep. And that's not to say he's actually, you know, he's a smaller guy, he's a smaller quarterback, you know, his stats don't necessarily jump off the page the way that Stroud or Duggan or, or, or Caleb Williams did. And, and as you mentioned, he has been criticized, but he's got a strong arm. There's, he has a much stronger arm than I think probably people realize. Stronger than Jake Fromm and the Aaron Murrays and the other kind of Georgia quarterbacks he often gets compared to. He's got a strong arm. He's actually very accurate underneath. He knows where to go with the ball, but he's not as accurate down the field. He's not consistent in his accuracy, I will say. He can hit them, but he doesn't hit them as, as often as you might expect from someone who's in that position, right? And I think that's what much the same way that the game plan was dare J.J. McCarthy to make those plays, they're going to have to dare Stetson Bennett to do the same. They're going to have to make sure that he can't just throw bubble screens to, you know, to Brock Bowers or to hit Brock Bowers on a pop pass over the middle. So I think 
the key is 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 make sure you got a plan to stop Bowers, and then make sure that if if you lose to Georgia, it's because Stetson Bennett played another game of his life. He played extremely well in the playoffs last year. I'm sure he's got he's out to prove to do the same thing. He'll be a program legend if he does. But I'm banking on that rather than you know out toughing a, a good offensive line not good not great I don't think that their offensive line the Georgia's offensive line is as good as Michigan's for instance all their running backs are good you know there's a they, there's a lot of depth there so they stay fresh so I don't think you want to get in the, the you know the fight in the phone booth with Georgia I think you want to say we're going to force you to throw the ball so that's that's one on when Ohio State's on defense and then when Ohio State has the ball it's you got to know where 88 is you have to know where 88 is and that comes into into effect for when you're both running the ball, of course, you don't want to necessarily try to run into the teeth of that dude because he's so good that he can wreck an entire possession on his own, but also in pass protection because he is their best pass rusher. So that means designing pass you know, protection schemes that provide help up the middle so that you know if the center and the guard are both doubling Jalen Carter on the interior, you can't just leave the guard, you know, the guard and the tackle on the other side alone because Georgia's going to run games. They're going to run blitzes. If they know that you're going to try to sell out to stop 88, they're going to do other stuff and they're going to create problems that way. So I think it's having multiple answers for 88 and allowing CJ Stroud the time to deliver the ball downfield. If Ohio State has the time to throw the ball, I like the chances of the receivers to make plays downfield. We saw that last year when Alabama's receivers were healthy. Um, We've seen that in years past. When Alabama's had healthy receivers, they've taken advantage downfield, you know, against this Georgia defense and Kirby Smart system. And so, I, you know, I, I think that Ohio State's got just as as talented receiver room, even without JSN. You know, they've still got the best receivers that Georgia's seen all year, and that includes Tennessee, in my opinion. And, and Jones, you certainly sound optimistic in, in multiple regards <laughs> for Ohio State here. But you know, have you seen enough to feel comfortable making you know a prediction for how the game actually plays out? So I'll say this: I, I if we play, if they play the game ten times, I think Ohio State wins three or four of them. So I, I don't necessarily, I'm not predicting that Ohio State will win because I think Georgia's too well coached. They don't make mistakes. They don't put themselves in bad positions. And I think this Ohio State team, we've seen enough clunkiness. There's been enough people in and out of the lineup. Now that may change. They may come out of the bowl practice with everybody healthy and everybody crisp. And we see the team that was there, you know, late September that was running like a machine. If that team shows up, then this is going to be a heck of a game. But if it's the team that played Maryland, you know, the team that played, you know, showed up for a lot of the Michigan game, you know, George is just going to slow cook this team where, and I, and I mean that, and it's going to be tight. It's going to be close. And then you're just going to see at the end, the team that executes better, that doesn't make mistakes, that, that wins in all three phases that can put together a nine play 11, you know, 80 yard drive. That's the team that's going to win. And, and frankly, I, I, I personally, despite all the opportunities for Ohio state to win, I just, I just have trouble right now coming off of, you know, the Michigan game and even the games before that to say that Ohio state's going to put together 60 minutes of, you know, that good of football. We haven't seen them do it in a big game since Clemson in, in 29 and, and sorry, in 2020, to be honest with you. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for your time. We always get smarter when you come on to pod. So thank you so much for joining us. And I'm I'm sure we'll have you back on again at some point after the Peach Bowl to break down how it all went down. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's fun being here. So as Jones mentioned, Keenan Bailey is going to be Ohio State's new tight ends coach, as was confirmed by Ohio State on Saturday. Not a surprise as as we talked about last week, you know, we certainly felt like that was ultimately where things were were going to be headed and I think higher it makes a lot of sense for Ohio State. This is a guy who's more than paid his dues for this opportunity. You know, he's been at Ohio State since 2016. He's actually been there longer than Ryan Day has been there. So this is a guy who has been around for a long time. You know, as Jones mentioned, he's very well respected within the program. He's somebody that even though he hasn't been an on-field coach yet, has been very integral behind the scenes in terms of offensive game planning. And so I think this is going to be a natural fit for Ohio State, you know, not only from a coaching perspective and, you know, his ability to contribute to the offensive game plan and, you know, the relationships he's already built with the players, 
but I also think recruiting as well. This is a guy you, you you've heard guys. I know I know you know very shortly after his hire was confirmed, you know, Carnell Tate and Brandon Innes both sent tweets congratulating him. And so, you know, this is a guy who's done a great job of building relationships on the recruiting trail. And, you know, you think of another younger guy who's, you know, closer in age to the players. I think he has some of that kind of Brian Hartline charisma to him. And, and I think, you know, he he's a guy that is going to very likely become one of the ace recruiters on this staff in addition to being somebody who can be valuable on the football side. Yeah, and Ryan Day really glowed about Keenan Bailey on Tuesday, said that, you know, he's an unbelievable young coach. Also said that he's turned down multiple opportunities to go elsewhere in the past few years, which I think as an Ohio State fan, you know, that that tells you that this is a guy that actually wants to be here, wants to be in this, you know, Buckeye program. And now we see him in an elevated role. Dan, as far as the offensive coordinator is concerned, obviously with Kevin Wilson departing, Ryan Day didn't exactly uh, make any big announcements or tip his hand at all in terms of what his next move is to replace Kevin Wilson in that role. He said that, you know, Kevin Wilson is still prioritizing Ohio State's CFP run, although he is still, you know, taking on some responsibilities there at his new gig and said that that, that they'll, you know, cross that bridge after the season ends once the CFP, you know, run is finished there. Yeah, I think, you know, as as Jones mentioned, certainly the writing appears to be on the wall that Ohio State is going to promote from within. You know, we're probably not going to get a formal answer on who will be promoted or, you know, the the lingering question of whether Ryan Day will continue to call plays. We're probably not going to get formal answers on that until after this season is over because you know, they're not going to make any big changes now. For the rest of this season, Ryan Day is going to continue to call the plays. Kevin Wilson is going to continue to be his his right-hand man, and they're going to continue doing things the way they've done things here for the Peach Bowl. And you know, if Ohio State is fortunate enough to win that game, then for the national championship game as well. But I'm, I imagine that very shortly after the season ends, we probably will get an answer on what's next for Ohio State's offensive coordinator position. You know, seems like the momentum is probably for Justin to end up getting that position. I mean, he's a guy who was the offensive coordinator at UCLA for three years before he joined the staff at Ohio State. So I think, you know, that would be a natural transition, you know, particularly with Kevin Wilson being more of a run game guy, Justin Fry also being more of a run game guy. I think that would be a logical move. Certainly, you know, Brian Hartline's a guy who's worthy of consideration here as well. And, you you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there who would like to see Brian Hartline get that promotion just because it, they know that he's a guy who's going to continue to be courted aggressively by other teams, whether that be in college, you know, or the NFL. I think Brian Hartline's going to continue to have a lot of suitors. And so, you know, there's kind of that sense of he, he's got to keep you got to keep moving him up the ladder if you're going to keep him at Ohio State. But I, I also think that, you know, if you're if you're just going off of qualifications in terms of proven ability to coordinate an offense. I think in in that reason, Justin Fry would be the most logical candidate for an internal promotion. Yeah, Dan, it was actually funny on Tuesday, you know, obviously the, the CEO, Gary Stoke, and we had him on the show of the Peach Bowl came on, came on and, and extended a formal invitation to Gene Smith, Ryan Day, and the Ohio State program for the Peach Bowl. But the, the press conference really was not dominated by questions about Georgia or the Peach Bowl by any stretch. You know, there, there's so much going on at this time of the year, of course, for college football programs with, you know, coaches coming and going, players coming and going in the transfer portal, you know, signing day coming up all the NIL stuff going on right now. There was a lot to talk to Ryan Day about and not you know, that much of it, honestly, Dan, had to do with Georgia specifically. No, not really much at all. I think there were two questions about Georgia and, you know, some other questions about injuries. You know, Dallin Hayden came up a couple times as, you know, we continue to wonder, you know, why he didn't play more in that Michigan game. But really, uh, the majority of a press conference, I would say, was about stuff like the transfer portal and NIL. I mean, I asked about the transfer portal, so I'm not I'm not dogging it by any means. Like it, it was on my mind as well to ask about other stuff, and I think that just speaks to how crazy December is right now in college football because y you, know, you 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 know the traditional way of thinking would be Ohio State should be fully focused on the Peach Bowl. The only thing that matters is beating Georgia. But the reality is the early signing period is next week. 
the transfer portal is full of players right now. I mean, right before we started recording here on Tuesday, Ohio State had another player enter the transfer portal, Jansen Dunn. You're continuing to see players from all over the country enter the portal every day. And so the reality is Ohio State cannot afford to just wait until January to start attacking these things. They have to be dealing with them now. So, you know, when I asked Ryan Day about it, he started to laugh and he he said, I don't sleep much right now because, you know, he he mentioned that, you know, I think today Ohio State was practicing and then he was going to be getting on a plane after practice to go recruit again for a couple days and then would be back on Thursday for another practice. So it's a crazy time right now in, in college football. You know, I, I think certainly Ryan Day and the rest of the coaching staff will be glad when the early signing period is over next week and then they can, you know, really lock in on preparing for the bowl. But even then, you know, you've still got to be monitoring the transfer portal. You've still got to be aware of things that are going on because, you know, the reality of the transfer portal situation is you'd love to be able to say, well, just just push it back to January or February so that teams can finish their seasons first. The problem with that is most colleges start their second semester in January. And so the reason why you have to have the transfer portal now rather than a month from now is for athletes who want to transfer to a new school for the spring semester, they have to go through that process before the spring semester actually starts. And so, you know, and so, you know, if Ohio State is going to make moves in the transfer portal, which, you know, Ryan Day said Tuesday that they are certainly going to be involved in that. He continued to reiterate that any players they add are going to have to be upgrades on the field and the right fit culturally off the field. And so, you know, we haven't, there hasn't been a whole lot of buzz so far about players Ohio State could pursue in the transfer portal. That doesn't mean there won't be. I, I, I would certainly be surprised if Ohio State doesn't make any transfer portal additions. I think they'll probably need to make a, a few and we'll kind of see how that plays out over time. But, you know, it, it's a challenge right now if, if you're Ohio State's coaches because, you know, we know they, you know, really got to lock in on Georgia because they got to play a lot better in that game. But also, when you think ahead to the future of a program, you, you can't afford to just block it out until January. You, you have to still be working on those things right now. Yeah, and you mentioned the transfer portal. I mean, a couple of guys that we talked about as potential targets for Ohio State in the transfer portal have already, you know, gone elsewhere now, Dan, and I've already committed to other schools. You talk about Desan McCullough from, from Indiana going to Oklahoma, former Ohio State commit, of course, Justin Jacobs as well going to Oregon. And yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be, you know, a whole lot of smoke but uh, with guys right now in terms of Ohio State, but, you know, it's just something that you, you can think about it from the coach's perspective. It's got to be very hard to manage. But then again, Dan, that is why someone like Ryan Day gets paid the big bucks after all. And the other thing that, of course, is now complicating matters is NIL. And, you know, kind of an interesting move last week by Gene Smith that he put out a statement basically saying the collectives need additional support and we encourage you to support them, those free collectives that Ohio State has being the foundation, the Cohesion Foundation and the O Foundation. The O Foundation is more basketball focused. The other two have been primarily football focused with, you know, some basketball and other sports as as well. But, you know, that was also another topic that came up a lot on Tuesday because, you know, I think there have been, you know, growing rumblings out there that, you know, Ohio State is is falling behind on NAL or, you know, maybe more specifically that, you know, you have other schools that are making these aggressive upfront offers to recruits that Ohio State is not making. And, you know, I this is a topic that, you know, the hard thing about this topic when we talk about it is I feel like there's so many rumors out there and not a whole lot of like actual concrete data or evidence. So you hear things, but you don't really know what's true and what's not. And so, you know, I, I, I tend to think that some of the stuff out there is being overblown in terms of some of the stuff that gets put out in terms of what's being offered to players or what Ohio State's not doing. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, 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 I don't know that this is a, a 
situation in which you should believe everything you hear. But at the same time, the fact that Gene felt compelled to make that statement, I do think that is telling because until then, we really hadn't seen anyone from Ohio State come out and directly say, you should support these collectives. They need your help. Like, that's the first time we've heard them go that far. Like, we've seen this very gradual over the past year and a half where when it first started in July 2021, Ohio State was like, we need to regulate everything. We're we're not going to go down certain roads. We're not going to talk about recruiting with NIL. We're just going to focus on our current athletes. And they were like very strict on that initially. And we've seen over the past year and a half that, you know, maybe those barriers that Ohio State self-imposed have slowly started to come down as Ohio State has realized, well, other schools are doing this stuff. And and if we don't do it, and if the NCAA is not going to step in and do anything about what they're doing, then we have no choice but to do some of the same things. And so we've kind of seen this gradual embrace from Ohio State of this idea that, you know, NIL is going to be utilized in recruiting and that Ohio State has to be a part of that conversation. You know, Ryan Day said Tuesday that NIL has become, quote, the conversation among among recruits. And so, you know, I think there's definitely an acknowledgement from Ryan Day, Gene Smith, and everyone within Ohio State that NIL is something they 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 have to be involved in. It is something that, you know, does matter in terms of their ability to land top recruits. But you know, they think there's still hesitancy from people like Ryan Day and Gene Smith to, to go too far out there in into really advocating for it. You know, I mean, we, 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 we saw a statement from Gene Smith, but I still think there's some hesitancy there from Ohio State to really want to go all out and say, give recruits money. I, I, I still think they're... they're they're still kind of trying to walk that fine line and it and it's just it's it, it's just such a you know it's still new it, it's still an ever-changing landscape and I think Ohio State like everyone else it, is still kind of figuring out what's the best way to navigate this yeah Dan, in, in terms of the fans reaction to that statement, from Gene Smith in terms of, you know, pointing out those links to the different foundations that fans could, you know, donate to and things like that. I, I mean, I, I definitely, I certainly saw a lot of kind of negative reaction. Cause I think from, from, for a lot of fans, it's like, Hey, like I'm, I'm buying season tickets. I'm going to games. I'm, you know, giving money to the, you know, athletics department, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're telling me I have to, you know, go and, and donate more money to, to, you know, the foundations and stuff for the NIL stuff. And, and I think there's a lot of maybe misconceptions too about exactly how this all works. And like the fact that the, the collectives aren't actually like working for Ohio state, you know, the, 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 you know, the university and stuff like that. And so there's certainly a lot of details that I think people aren't necessarily fully, fully grasping about it, or there's some confusion. And I think that like Gene Smith would like to have kind of an, an open dialogue with fans that are confused about those kind of things and where, where they could put their, their money to, you know, and, and what that dollar does and things like that. So I think those are things that could be cleared up moving forward, you know? And yeah, like you said, like Ryan Day was asked, you know, about like his, his thoughts on what the NCA should be doing and where the NCA is and all this. And he didn't necessarily directly respond to that, but he did say that he does find himself sometimes asking like, what are we doing here? And I think you know, there, there will be changes that in terms of the guidelines and things like that, I believe. But yeah, right now it seems like, you know, a, a lot of it's up in the air. And you mentioned that dialogue. I mean, I think that's a good thing. I think, I think that's needed. I think that dialogue is, is needed. I think fans need more answers about how stuff works. Cause I, like you, I've seen a lot of the comments and one comment I've seen a lot is I would donate if I knew exactly where this money was going, because it's really not clear. Like, you know, you, you hear about they're making deals with, with a- athletes and you, you occasionally see some deals that get announced, but I, I still think there's a lot of gray area about how exactly this money is being used. And, and, you know, I, 
I understand why that gray area is there because everybody's still kind of figuring this thing out. And they, you know, if, if a collective is, you know, talking to a recruit about a deal, they can't necessarily come out and say, we're doing this. So I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it's understandable why there is some gray area there, but I also like, I, I, I absolutely 100% get where those comments are coming from. Cause I would feel the same way if, if I was a fan thinking about donating to a collective. I mean, I just think about not, you know, just in general, like if I donate money to something, I want to know exactly where that money is going. I, I, you know, and so I, I think there does need to be more dialogue. And I, and I think how that dialogue is framed is important too, because I think one thing I've started to see more increasingly is kind of this guilt tripping of, well, if you're not donating, then you don't have a right to complain about recruiting and stuff like that. And I think that's something that pisses fans off. If, you know, let's say you're a season ticket holder and you're, you're paying money or, I mean, not even just, a, it shouldn't even say season ticket holder. Let's just say you bought tickets to a game this year or you did anything to support the athletic department. And then you hear, well, I didn't donate to a collective, so I don't, you know, I, I can't, you know, complain about how things are going. Like people are going to take offense to that and rightfully so, because if, if people have, have already invested money into the Ohio State Athletic Department, they should have a voice. They, they should feel like what, what they are doing is, is meaningful. And so I, I think it's important for everybody involved in this, whether it's the collectives, whether the athletic department, you know, coaches, whoever, if, if you want to encourage people to be a part of these efforts, you, 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 you can't talk, you can't talk down to them. You, you've got to, you've got to be forthcoming about where this money is going and you, you've got to, you know, make it more clear, more explanatory to people about how this whole process works and how, you know, if, if you are donating to a co collective, what that can do to help, you know, Ohio state athletes or, you know, Ohio state in general, you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and say whether I think people should or shouldn't donate to a collective because that's, that's everybody's personal, personal choice. But I, I do think that from, you know, the, the perspective of Ohio State and the collectives, there, there does need to be more dialogue and, it, you know, it needs to be in a way that is approachable to people, that in a way that realizes there are a lot of valid questions about how this whole process works and in a way that an answers, those, answers those questions in a forthcoming way. Yeah, Dan, I've, I've seen a lot of people wondering, like, how much money do you take, for example, the foundation, right? So Cardell Jones and like Brian Schottenstein and whatnot, you know, involved with with that. And, and people are wondering on Twitter, like, how much what percentage of the money are those guys getting from the donations that we might be donating? And then those guys are coming back and saying on Twitter, you know, we're not taking a salary from this at all. It's all, you know, just to help the student athletes at Ohio State and things of that nature. So that's just one more example of, you know, why, the reason why fans might have a little bit of pushback to say, hey, what is what is going on here? Transparency, I definitely think is needed, especially with this being so new, right? Because you know, some fans are feeling like this is like a, it feels weird to them that, yes, essentially there's this like a GoFundMe now for, to, to throw money at, at things that might come to fruition or might not in terms of bringing in players. So, you know, it's a new thing. There's some, some kinks to be worked out for sure. We will see how everything unfolds with that. But Dan, another reason why, I mean, Ryan Day was getting asked so much about NIL is because we talked about this, this December time, timeline for, you know, college football coaches and whatnot. The early signing day is coming up, you know, real quick next week. And there's still a lot of, you know, big time targets that Ohio State is hoping to lock down. So that's just another another reason why the NIL situation is so prevalent right now. 
yeah, one week from today, the early signing day, and we'll plan on having Garrick Hodge on the show next week to to break down the class as a whole. But, you know, still a lot of questions to be answered here over the next week for the Buckeyes. Uh, still chasing several key targets, specifically at the defensive end position. They did miss out on Keon Keeley, who committed to Alabama on Monday, but still in the hunt for five-star defensive ends, Damon Wilson and Mateo Uyunglele, both of who are expected to announce their commitments on signing day, as well as four-star defensive end Joshua Mickens, who's expected to announce his commitment at the All-American Bowl. Also, still pursuing Washington quarterback commit Lincoln Kineholes. You know, I've heard that, you know, he he's still up in the air right now, whether he's going to sign next week or if he might wait until February. But Ohio State trying to get him into the fold to add a quarterback to the 2023 class. Running back, another position where, you know, Ohio State doesn't have anyone committed right now. They've been pursuing Jamarian Wilcox, a running back from Georgia, but it seems like he might be trending away from Ohio State right now. And so still some, you know, significant holes to fill in this class. I mean, I think out of all those players I just named, the only one who, you know, you can really say right now, just reading the tea leaves that I'd say really think will be a Buckeye is, is Mickens. I mean, I think, I think they're still in the race for those other guys, but I think, you know, right now Mickens is the only one I would say that I have, you know, a high degree of confidence will actually commit to and sign to the Buckeyes. And so I think there's certainly some work to be done here for Ohio state over the next week, because, you know, you look at the class right now, they have 19 commitments ranked fifth in the country, but I, I, I still feel like this class could use a jolt of star power, specifically outside of a wide receiver position. It's a really strong receiver class with Brandon Innes, Carnell Tate, Noah Rogers, Bryson Rogers. But, you know, if, if you look outside of those guys in this class, Ohio State, out, outside of a wide receiver position, has four top 100 guys. The, 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 the top in-state the top non-in-state guy from, you know, outside of a wide receiver position is Jason Moore, defensive lineman from Maryland, who's the 60th ranked prospect in, in the in the class. Really good prospect, but I, I do feel like outside of a wide receiver position in this class, there's not quite as much star power, marquee names in this class as maybe we've seen in other classes in years past. And so I, I think the class they have right now is a good class, but I think if, if they don't get some big wins here down the stretch, it's not going to be a great class by Ohio State standards, at least on paper. Yeah, we've certainly seen, you know, in recent weeks, some of the former major targets for Ohio State, you know, going to, to Alabama and things like that. And I think just generally with the the angst of the fan base right now coming off of the Michigan loss, you know, landing one of those those dominoes would be you know, good for public favor in, in terms of the the program right now. But of course, Dan, let's let's talk about some of the guys that are already in the program and kind of the awards that some of the Buckeyes have been sweeping up or not sweeping up in the last you know week or so here. Uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. really Dan, kind of the the headliner in terms of recognition since the season happened. He's he's now a unanimous All American selection, getting a, a whole bunch of you know first team nods and things like that. He did not take home the Bletnikoff Trophy. That went to Jalen Hyatt of Tennessee, who's, you know, if, if you do look at their their stats, Hyatt does compare favor, favorably in a lot of categories. But I think I know a lot of people, perhaps yourself included, Dan, think that Harrison is p- potentially the, the, the actual best wide receiver in the country. He would have gotten my vote. He is still going to be a unanimous All-American, which is in itself a, a great accomplishment. We'll get him a tree in Buckeye Grove, along with Paris Johnson, who is a consensus All-American, as well as Tommy Eichenberg and Dewan Jones, who both earned first-team All-American nods. And so Marvin Harrison, he's got another year to chase for Bolitnikoff. Now, again, I mean, you don't, you know, we t- we said we were saying the same thing a year ago with Jackson and Jigba. So who who knows what'll happen next year? You can't bank on anything happening next year. And so you know I'm sure there is some disappointment there to not win the Bolitnikov, which I, I I do think that he was worthy of winning, but still getting a lot of well-deserved recognition for the great season that he's had, as well as those other players mentioned. You know, but one the one thing that I I, I think is striking to me is that. 
CJ Stroud was a Heisman Trophy finalist two years in a row, but he's not going to get a tree in Buckeye Grove because he's never been named a first-team All-American. And, and it's actually, when you think back in the past five years, Dwayne Haskins, Justin Fields, CJ Stroud, all Heisman finalists, all guys who I think would you would rank among the top four or five quarterbacks in Ohio State history, and none of them will have a, a tree in Buckeye Grove, which is kind of crazy to think about. It is wild, Dan. But I mean, of, of course, you look at it and there's multiple slots on an All-American team for a wide receiver in some other positions. So it is tough to be that number one quarterback in the country, which is why we haven't seen one of these those guys they actually. Just, they've consistently been the second best or the third best quarterback, but they just have not quite gotten over that hump to where they're that first, their number one quarterback, where they become a first team All-American and a Heisman Trophy winner. Exactly. It just hasn't all come together. You know, C.J. Stroud's so close this year. If he would have won that Michigan game, perhaps it would be a different conversation in, in multiple regards. Just a few minutes left here, but, you know, want to talk very quickly about Ohio State basketball, which won its Big Ten opener in dramatic fashion last week, though not without controversy as the Big Ten came out the next day and acknowledged that Tanner Holden's game-winning free at the buzzer should not have counted because Tanner Holden had stepped out of bounds and had not reestablished himself in bounds when he caught the pass from Bruce Fortin before his game-winning shot. And so, Griffin, how do you maybe evaluate that win knowing that it probably should have been a loss? I still think it's a very, very good win for Ohio State because, man, that's what I was I was kind of writing this as a potential lead for the for my you know, game recap until the game winner happened, in which case I had to kind of delete that and start start fresh there. But uh, always you know, fun when you have to write your whole story at the buzzer, isn't it? Right. It's like there's so many things could happen where like you could still use a certain thing just for a, a peek behind the curtain from when you're writing these. But when someone hits a game winning buzzer beater three pointer, you know, well beyond the three point line with no time left on the clock, which was the first time actually, Dan, since the Evan Turner buzzer beater for Ohio State in the Big Ten tournament that, you know, a buzzer beater was hit with actually 0.00 on the clock because we've had some in recent years, you know, Zed Key with the game winner against Akron, Michi Johnson in that Florida tournament thing last year. But those were not with 0.00 left on the clock. So this was, you know, a, a big deal. But yeah, like Ohio State all offseason and in the preseason was like, OK, Ohio State has this talent, a lot of freshmen, a lot of new faces. But, you know, are they going to be ready to win games in the Big Ten right off the bat? And, you know, even though you know it should have been a loss, I understand that, but they were right in that game regardless. And so, you know, if one, there could have been a different call made at the end of that game. Let's say, you know, Bruce Thornton gets foul, gets, you know, Rutgers gets whistled for a foul, you know, as they were kind of hounding Bruce Thornton coming up the court to deliver that pass to Tanner Holden to hit the game winner, then he's at the line with a chance to, what, tie it up or, or whatever it was. So, you know, the fact that it was that close against a Rutgers team that had just dominated the number 10 ranked team in the country in Indiana and, you know, put up a lot more points on Rutgers than Indiana managed, I still think that's a very good win for a team that is still, you know, settling in here. You will be at Madison Square Garden on Saturday where the Buckeyes will play North Carolina in the CBS Sports Classic, a game that's maybe not quite what we thought it would be in the sense that UNC is currently unranked. And this is a team that I, I think was ranked number one in the preseason poll. And so you probably would have gone into this game thinking, oh, this, I mean, this would be a momentous win if Ohio State wins and you know, UNC probably going to be heavily favored. And now it's like, oh, maybe Ohio State should win this game. So what do you think? What are your expectations going into this game for Ohio State? Yeah, I think it should be a good game. I, I think North Carolina's lost maybe four of their last five games, something like that. They did start the season, a preseason number one, after finishing as the national runner-up in the NCAA tournament last year. You know, it's certainly a, a, a big spotlight on this one, 3 p.m. Saturday in New York City at Madison Square Garden. You certainly would not have thought going into the season that North Carolina was going to be the unranked team. And then Ohio State, which has improved to number 23 in the country, as of Monday in the AP poll, you would not have thought the Buckeyes were going to be the, the one ranked team in this matchup. I still think it's a dangerous, dangerous game, you know, for Ohio State when you look at the obviously, I mean, with a, with a, with a blue chip program like North Carolina, the, the you know, talent on display there, Ryan Day, or I mean, well, Ryan Day, Chris Holtman saying that, you know, the, the North Carolina backcourt with guys like Caleb Love and RJ Davis both averaging 
above 16 points a game is the best backcourt in the country. Armando Baycott, a senior forward who did a lot of great things in the NCAA tournament last year. Pete Nance as well, Dan, you'll remember from playing at Northwestern in the past. So the, the Buckeyes have seen him a lot over the past years. The six foot ten senior forward from Akron, Ohio, he's averaging almost 13 points a game. So still a, you know, a very talented Northwestern team. North but Carolina. I, North Carolina, yeah, it's it's been a long couple to start to this week already, Dan. I guess, but uh, yeah, I think it'll be a good game. Will Ohio State be favored in this matchup? They might be a small favorite. They might be a small favorite. I don't think either team's going to be, you know, favored by by many points either way. But you know what? I might just go ahead, just momentum wise, right now, seeing how Ohio State's played teams like Duke. You know, seeing how Ohio State opened up the Big Ten schedule. I'll I'll go ahead and favor Ohio State in this one, Dan. Yeah, it feels like kind of a toss-up game to me. You know, probably going to be pretty close to a pick or maybe one or two points either side. But I do think that, you know, it would be a big win for Ohio State. I mean, look, they, they have one really good non-conference win, I would say, with their win over Texas Tech. But I think I think they could – this is really their last opportunity for a signature non-conference win. I think it would certainly help their resume come March if they can get a win over North Carolina this weekend and kind of – give them you know give them another good win on the resume before they start conference play so we'll see how that plays out and follow along with your coverage ohio state women's basketball still rolling they're 10 and 0 had their their first real test of a year against michigan state on on sunday that was a one point game with less than a minute to go but ohio state ultimately doing what it need to do to finish that game with a win, improve to 10-0 on the season and still the number three ranked team in the country. So that team is off to a terrific start this year. Really their their next big test really coming at the end of a month, the same day as the Peach Bowl when they will play Michigan in a rivalry game. So and that will really be the next big game to watch for those Buckeyes. And we'll also give a shout out to the women's volleyball team whose season ended with a loss to a, a Texas team that I think has a very good chance to win it all. They are the, the number one seed in the tournament and watching that game over a weekend, they looked certainly like the team to beat. And so no real shame for Ohio State in, in losing that game to Texas, but still a great season for those Buckeyes who made it to the Elite Eight for the first time since 2004. By the time you guys are listening to this on Wednesday, we will have, what, a two-hour window, Dan, to talk to, you know, a bunch of Ohio State players, you know, in advance of the Peach Bowl, of course, the, the team, and we will be arriving on the 26th of December, so we will hear what a lot of those guys have to say, you know, some of them for the first time since, you know, everything went down against Michigan. Yeah, and we'll be back next week. Once again, we will talk a lot about signing day next week as it as we will be ha- ha- publishing our show on signing day. So we will spend a lot of time talking about Ohio State's incoming recruiting class next week, as well as continuing to preview the Peach Bowl and talking about what we learned from those aforementioned interviews. So thanks again to Kyle Jones to joining us. Great. Great conversation with him. Thanks to everybody who listened in, and we'll talk to you again next week.